If you have a Bible with you this morning, how about if you open it up to the book of Acts, chapter 13. If you don't have one with you, you're going to find them in the rack around you or um, uh, on the back in a table, there's uh, free Bibles if you don't own a Bible. We'd really love for you to have a copy of God's Word. So when you leave this morning, grab a Bible on the way out and you can study it yourself and um, nothing better that you can own than God's Word, right church? Um, we're going to be doing kind of a two-parter this morning. Uh, this week is really kind of a setup for next week, and I'll, I'll explain that in just a little bit as we move forward. In the last two weeks, we've been looking at the thought that it's really a bad idea to go to war against God. And so specifically, two weeks ago, we looked at what happened when King Agrippa I decided to go to war against God's church. And then last week, we took kind of a rabbit trail, and we went off into... Um, First Kings, and we looked at what happened when Elijah encountered Jezebel, this queen who was leading a government, and she decided to go to war against God. And both of those instances lead us back to where we're going in Acts chapter 13 this morning, because you're going to see again, one more time as a reminder, God always wins. Right, church? He always wins. God never loses. So that's why it's a really, really bad idea to oppose God for this reason, because God fights back. And people forget that. God does fight back, even though many times it feels like evil is winning. There's a principle that's coming out of the passage that we're looking at this morning. And the principle was stated by Jesus first. Let me show you the way that he said it. Matthew 16, 18 says this, I will build my church and the gates of Hades, if you're not familiar with that word, that's the word hell, the gates of hell will not overpower it. The truth coming out of that is this. When God's kingdom advances, satanic opposition should be anticipated. It actually should be expected. When God's kingdom is moving forward, Jesus is promising right there, it's going to be there. The opposition is real, so you should expect it. But know this, I never lose. I cannot be defeated. So he says, my church will advance. The gates of hell will not be able to overpower. We're going to come back to that thought as we move forward this morning. Let's go into Acts chapter 13 and verse 1. Before we read even one word of it, though, I'm going to ask you to pray with me. So we invite God's Spirit to really lead us. Would you do that? Heavenly Father, we come before you recognizing that what I would do as a man this morning would fall short if your Holy Spirit wasn't guiding us and leading us and helping us to understand. So we yield this time together to your spirit to be our teacher and guide. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Acts chapter 13 and verse 1 says this, Now there were at Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. This is really unique for this leadership at this time. This is a brand new church. They haven't existed very long, and yet they've got five incredibly gifted teachers. Teachers and prophets, Scripture says. So we got this unique setting with five very gifted teachers. Throughout the New Testament, you find that when churches are really successful, they have godly, strong, powerful teachers. And in this case, they happen to have five of them here. Antioch is no exception to that rule whatsoever. But they've also got the designation of prophets. 
Now, in the New Testament, as well as in the Old Testament, when you see the word prophet, many times it makes you think of future things, people who can identify things that haven't happened yet. While that designation is true, in this particular case, it's really speaking to individuals who have this gift of edification. They hear from God's Spirit, and they're able to take that and translate it into the good for the body so that the body knows how to respond to God's leading. So we've got these five guys Five guys whom we don't know a lot about. Barnabas and Saul are mentioned. We know a little bit more about them. But these other three that are mentioned, Simeon, Lucius, Manan. Well, Simeon, he's called a Niger, meaning he's got very dark skin, a very dark complexion. We don't know where he's from specifically, but that's all we know. Here's what we know spiritually, though. These five guys are bathed in prayer. Spiritually, they're in this mode of fasting, And the Bible always connects fasting with times of really vigilant spiritual focus. If you got your notes this morning, you see a bunch of references I put there in association with fasting from the Old Testament into the New Testament. It's not something that you're commanded to do by Jesus, by the way. You're not commanded to fast, but it's something that Jesus did. So, you know, kind of makes us on that list of, well, if we want to be like Jesus. So myself, personally, I fast once a week. I don't know if you do that or if you're at that place in your life, but usually I try and do from Saturday noon till Sunday at noon because fasting really sharpens my focus. It it, it just clarifies your thinking if you haven't tried that before. And we find Jesus fasting throughout the New Testament. As a matter of fact, he uses a phrase this way. He says, when you fast. He doesn't say if you fast, but when you fast, meaning he kind of expected them to do it, but he didn't really command it. So in verse 2, we find these individuals who are ministering, they're fasting, and in the midst of that, the Holy Spirit says, I want you to set apart Paul and Barnabas. Now this is remarkable for this reason. Antioch is the first church to recognize the need to go out and reach the Gentile world. They begin reaching the non-Jewish population, the Gentiles. Now they appear to be the first church to catch the vision for foreign missions, They're going to be the first ones to send missionaries out into the Gentile world. Now, God's already got Paul on his team. He interrupted him on the road to Damascus, right? We saw that happen. He said, you're going to be a witness for me to the Gentile world. So what the church is doing here is they're really confirming the call. There's a commissioning service that's about to take place. It's at the direction of the Holy Spirit in conjunction with the church that these people are going to be set aside and they're going to be equipped to go to an island out in the Mediterranean Sea, as you're about to see in the story. Let's go to verse 3. It says, when, Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Now, Saul and Barnabas are already deeply involved in the work that God gave them. You might remember a few weeks ago when we were talking about Saul and Barnabas, it says that Saul was up in his hometown, Barnabas went and found him, he brought him back to Antioch, and they spent a year together teaching the church. These other three guys are added to the teaching team. So we've got the five lead teachers here, and they're being from that position called to even greater opportunity. Many times in the course of a typical year, I have a lot of young people approach me about how to know the will of God in their life, especially people 30 and under. Typically will say, how do I know God's will for my future? How do I know what he expects of me to do? I really want to understand that. Well, when you look at verses 2 and 3, you really find an important feature here to discover God's will for your life. 
And this important feature has to do with the fact that they're in the midst of doing God's will when God shows them what's next. So if you want to know God's future plans for you, do what he's called you to do now, and he'll make it really crystal clear for you what he has for you in the future. Now, one more feature here before we move into the story in verse 4. I see absolutely no evidence whatsoever here of any grumbling or any resentment on the part of the church, even though God has just asked for their two-star players. He hasn't asked for the guys on the fifth string that are sitting on the bench who never get into the game. He says, I want Paul and I want Barnabas, two starting players who are going to leave the home team and they're going out into the Mediterranean Sea. No complaining whatsoever here. So verse 3 says they fast, they pray, they lay their hands on them, they commission them, and they send them out. Let's go to verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. From there they sailed to Cyprus. When they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they also had John as their helper. So verse 4 tells us they went down to Seleucia. That's like 16 miles away. So they've been up in Antioch. They're upstream. They're on the side of a river. They take the barge downstream to Seleucia, and there's a port city. Think like Holland, Michigan, a port city. And they find in this port city, they can take passage out to the island of Cyprus, which is 60 miles away. Now, the very best merchant ships of the time in the first century, at best, could do four knots if the wind was really good. So these guys got 60 miles to go out over the Mediterranean Sea. This is going to be a fairly long voyage. This is not just a couple hours. Their destination is Cyprus, third largest island in the Mediterranean. It's also Barnabas' home. We learned that in Acts chapter 4. Barnabas grew up on the island of Cyprus, so this is like going home for him. What a great place to put his new assignment to the test. Cyprus has a really large Jewish population. So these guys find themselves in Cyprus, this island that was settled by the Egyptians. A little bit of historical information for you. It'll help you understand what's going on in Acts 13. Egypt, in the 18th century B.C., decided to take over the island of Cyprus, and they began settling it. In that time frame, they were unchallenged. But eventually, after hundreds of years, Rome came into power. And now we find, according to verse 7, it's under Roman jurisdiction because there's a Roman proconsul, meaning at some point it changed hands from Egypt over to Rome. And we're told that there's a proconsul in power. The capital city is the city of Salamis, according to verse 5. Now note that. According to verse 5, Paul steps into Salamis and he goes to the synagogue first. Throughout the book of Acts, from here till we finish the book, you're going to see that every time Paul goes into a major city, he finds a synagogue first. He begins sharing Jesus with the Jews, and then he moves out into the Gentile population, always going to the synagogue first. Their mission now at this point, though, is Cyprus. And Cyprus is this island of enormous status. Here's why it's so important. Egypt took it for a reason. Originally, they took it because it's a port island. So Egypt sits to the south at the top of Africa. Europe sits to the north. Italy, you know Greece, the area that's above Cyprus. But to the east, that's where Syria and Turkey, modern-day Turkey is at. The Middle East, Israel. That makes Cyprus a critical state 
area, this island, because when ships were out to port, when they were out to sea, they could come in the midst of a storm into this island and find refuge there. That meant economically this, this island is incredibly important. So in 52 B.C., Caesar Augustus seizes control of the island of Cyprus. And in 27 B.C., he's got such a dominant hand grip on it that he decides to put a governor there. There's no longer soldiers there in power. He puts a ruling authority. That helps us understand this passage, and I'll explain why. Move forward with me to verse 6. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bargesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Now, by this point in time, when you come to verse 6, the whole team, John, Paul, Barnabas, have made their way throughout the entire island. They've crisscrossed it back and forth. This island is 60 miles wide, 100 miles long. They've crisscrossed the island, and they make their way to the capital city of Paphos. Uh, Paphos is historic in Roman history because it's so incredibly pervasive with immorality. Matter of fact, the the guys on the island decided to say that going to see a prostitute was a religious act. I don't know what guy came up with that thought. So they began to worshiping the gods, small g, by going to see prostitutes, an incredibly immoral island. And in verse 6, we're told they come across a magician. Now, isn't that interesting that when Peter and John went into Samaria to reach the Gentiles the first time, who did they first run into but a magician, a sorcerer? And now we find Paul and Barnabas coming into an island covered with Gentiles, and who do they run into? A sorcerer. What's going on, church? When God's kingdom advances, you can expect satanic opposition. God's kingdom is on the move. Satan rears his ugly head, and we see the first person they meet is this magician. So Jesus told us, Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not come against it. Do you notice what I've underlined? I and my. Jesus says it's mine. It's highly possessive. I will build my church. It belongs to me, and hell will not be able to come against me because I'm God, and God never loses battles, right, church? I just want to make sure we're on the same page on that. God never loses. So Jesus is literally telling us, you can depend upon the fact that Satan will try and come against you. There will be attempts to come against God's people doing God's work. Some of you have encountered this. As you try and share Jesus in the workplace, perhaps with family members, maybe in social settings, it seems like somebody sets off a grenade every time you bring up the name of Jesus, right? There's no more controversial name than the name of Jesus. It just causes people to become very uncomfortable. Well, this magos, this magician, this trickster is no different. The word magos is found in the Bible. It's the word that's used here. It literally means someone who's a claimant to false power. So Luke actually goes one step further. He says he's not just a magician. Verse 6, he says he's a false prophet. So you find right away in this story in verses 6 and 7, the kingdom of darkness has attached itself to the government of the island of Cyprus like a parasite. It is right there in the midst of the cabinet. We find a Roman governor, a proconsul in charge. 
I'm going to do my best to keep your eyes from glazing over, but I want to link what I just told you about the island of Cyprus and its history with what you just saw listed here in this verse, in verse 7, when it says, Sergius Paulus, a Roman proconsul. In history, Rome had two types of provinces. One province was under Caesar's control. A Caesarial province meant that Caesar would put a governor in place to oversee his affairs and his interests. But Rome had a senate also, and there were senatorial provinces, and the senate had control over certain regions of land. Now, in the 1800s, the Bible became challenged greatly in what we call the Age of Enlightenment. During the period of the 1800s, the world of academia really started coming against the Bible saying you cannot authenticate the things that you find in the Bible. The dates, the geographical locations, they're highly questionable. To the degree that Dr. William Ramsey, Sir William Ramsey actually, a professor at Oxford, decided as an archaeologist who is also an atheist to take himself to the Mediterranean area and study the book of Acts in order to disprove it. Because he was so convinced that God's word was fallible, he decided to dedicate all of his energies to the studies of the areas where Luke and Paul made their life in the Middle East. Now, you've heard people before who have said, I'm going to disprove the word of God, right? Individuals who will say, you can't trust it, it can't be real, I'm gonna disprove it myself. So you probably can already see where this story is going. But Dr. William Ramsey decided to dedicate 30 years of his life to studying Paul's geographical locations. When he came to the issue of the island of Cyprus, he thought, aha, I've got it. Finally, I can prove that they're wrong. He knew that Caesar had control of the island of Cyprus. And in 27 BC, Caesar put a governor on the island. In other words, it didn't belong to the Senate. The Senate didn't have control of it, so there couldn't be a proconsul on the island. But while he was studying on the island of Cyprus, he came across an engraving on a stone. You can actually Google it up yourself today and see it, where it says, Sergius Paulus, proconsul of the island of Cyprus. What had happened was in 22 BC, Caesar Augustus surrendered control of the island of Cyprus to the Roman Senate. And the Roman Senate immediately put a proconsul in control of the island. Why do I tell you this? Not to make your eyes glaze over, okay? But so that you understand that when you read God's word, historically, archaeologically, you can back it up. It absolutely can be trusted, church. The the work has been done to the degree that Sir William Ramsey surrendered his life to Jesus Christ and understood that what I'm reading, what I'm studying here, absolutely can be depended upon. So we find in verse 7, Sergius Paulus, this man, he says, of intelligence, has a strong interest in philosophy and a strong interest in religion to the degree that he's put among his advisors on his cabinet team a Jewish teacher. Even though he's a false teacher, nonetheless, he's put this individual on his cabinet. Now, is it not surprising to you that a man whom Dr. Luke says is an intelligent man, who's a Roman proconsul, a governor put there by the Senate, can be so easily deceived by a sorcerer like this? But you can trust this story because Luke says this is happening. This is real. This guy's actually part of his cabinet. 
How can this be possible? Well, know this, the Romans put great weight in the powers of premonition. They absolutely believed there were people who could see into the future. And being a Jew did not hurt Bar-Jesus also, because unlike what Hollywood has caused you to believe, the Romans didn't really hate the Jews. As a matter of fact, they looked upon them with a degree of respect, understanding that they're very ancient people. And they have an understanding of religious things. Well, this proconsul is very interested in religious things. So he's put this Jewish man on his cabinet. Frauds, like Bar-Jesus, are usually very, very smooth and also very, very knowledgeable. Jesus said there's only one way you can recognize false teachers. Let me show you what he said. He said it this way in Matthew 7. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves, so you can't recognize them by their clothing, uh, by their appearance, Jesus is saying. Here's how you can recognize them. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. So Jesus says there's a way to recognize him. Sergius Paulus, he doesn't recognize that he's got a false teacher in his presence. He doesn't know Jesus. So Saul and Barnabas arrive. And from the proconsul's view, these are some additional guys whom I can learn from. These are teachers who can come into my presence and help me understand things. So in verse 7, you find that he summons Barnabas and Saul. Because as a ruler of the island, as the proconsul of Rome, he's responsible to find out, what is this thing that's sweeping across my island? I want to have more information. Plus, he's personally interested. According to verse 8, the magician is freaking out over this. He's distressed at the possibility that this governor is going to meet with Christ followers. Why? Because his setup is so lucrative. He's got a great deal. He's been put on the governor's cabinet. He's a sorcerer who can influence government. And he's freaking out over this because a ruler of darkness does not want to give up territory. Well, let's move forward into the story. Verse 8, but Elymas the magician, for his, so his name is translated, meaning in Greek, that's Bar-Jesus translated in Greek, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So Saul and Barnabas find themselves in this new surrounding. They've never been in a governor's palace before. They're standing in the great hall of the proconsul of Rome, and they get to present the message of Jesus. And as the gospel is being explained, Bar-Jesus attempts a derailment. Now, like most people of that era, Bar-Jesus is his Hebrew name, and he's got this Greek name, Elymas. And apparently the governor knows him by this name of Elymas, and he's seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. This should tell you something, church. Your efforts to talk about Jesus do not go unopposed. Your efforts to explain who Jesus is will not go unopposed because when God's kingdom is advancing, satanic opposition should be anticipated. That's what Jesus promised us. So I put just a couple fast Greek words in your notes this morning, and you're going to see the first two up on the screen, because this first word is talking about how he opposed them. If you have any background whatsoever in, in using antihistamines, maybe you suffer with allergies, it has its root in this word that you see on the screen, antihistamine. And antihistamine literally means to stand against, to oppose something. So we've got a man who's on the cabinet of the, the governor's advisors, 
who's opposing in such a way that everybody knows he's opposing what Paul and Barnabas are teaching. And then we use this word diastrepho. Diastrepho literally means to twist or pervert. It was used of cabinet makers, people who made furniture out of wood. And when the wood twisted or warped, it was called diastrepho, meaning it no longer held its shape. Well, what we're being told here by Dr. Luke is that this individual is not only opposing the Word of God, he's actually perverting the Word of God to make it say things it doesn't say. What are you seeing going on here, church? What you're seeing is the gates of hell are attempting to stand against the advancing kingdom. But Jesus said, my church will go forward. The gates of hell will not overpower it. So we get to watch that fleshed out here because this warning emerges. Leading someone to an understanding of Jesus is not just an academic exercise. If you've ever led someone to faith in Jesus Christ, you know it's not just about them understanding the academics or the history of who Jesus is. There's much more going on. It's not just about academics. It's about all-out warfare against the forces of hell. And so we're seeing that right here. Saul and Barnabas are battling for the soul of this man. And ultimately, Elymas is about to find out it's God that he's tried to go to battle against. The battle reaches its climax in these last two verses. Verses 9 and 10 say this, But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him. I'm kind of guessing that's a bad thing. You don't want Paul locking his eyes on you, right? Okay, verse 10. And said, you who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now understand what Paul's done here is he's reaching back into the Old Testament. He lives in the first century, but he's using this really familiar language out of the Old Testament when he levels these charges against this individual. The the very first charge is that you're full of deceit. And that's the case with everybody who deals in the occult. The word that he uses here is the word dolos. It's it's your last Greek word for this morning. You see it on the screen and in your notes. And it literally means to lay a bait in such a way that you're attempting to deceive someone. So so when a trapper puts a snare out, they want to hide the snare, right? But they leave the bait very visible because they'd like to trap the animal. So the same word is used here when trying to trap someone, the word dolos. Elymas has been baiting Sergius Paulus to believe things that are not true. He's presented something that's a disguise. He's not what he appears. He's a wolf in sheep's clothing, as Jesus said it. So he's not only deceiving, he's perverting the straight paths of the Lord. That's the other word that Luke used here that Paul said. Paul said also in verse 10, you're the enemy of righteousness. Now we know one of the great attributes of our God is righteousness. Right, church? So if you're an enemy of righteousness, that must mean you're an enemy of who? God. So he's literally saying, you've chosen to go to battle against God, which we've already established is a bad idea, right? It's a bad idea to go to battle against God. And he says, you're an enemy of God himself. So Paul looks at him with this crushing stare, you son of Satan. I haven't personally ever called somebody a son of Satan. Have you done that? I'm thinking probably not. Most of us would not go there, right? Can you imagine a more egregious charge to lay at somebody's feet? You son of Satan. 
That's a pretty powerful statement. But he's saying it accurately. How can Paul say this? No one who speaks Aramaic could miss the pun that's being played here. And just assuming that nobody in the auditorium this morning actually speaks Aramaic, I'll go ahead and explain it to you. If you happen to speak it, I'd be happy to have you come up here and finish the teaching, but I'm just going to guess there's no one here that does. But in Sergius Paulus's court proceedings, there would certainly be a lot of people who would speak Aramaic, and they would understand what Paul has just done here. See, Bar-Jesus, his Hebrew name, it means Bar-Yahshua, meaning son of Yahshua, meaning son of salvation. Paul is literally saying, you're no son of salvation. Matter of fact, you're the son of Satan. The pun is meant to be caught by everyone listening. You're not Bar-Jesus, you're Bar-Satan. In this moment, we have to ask ourselves, how can Paul know this? He's just met the guy because of verse 9. Verse 9 says, Paul being filled with the Holy Spirit because the Spirit of God recognizes the spirit of darkness every time, right? The Spirit of God sees the spirit of darkness. Paul calls him out according to who he is. We've established it's a bad idea to oppose God because he fights back. Let's see our God fight back. Verse 11 ends the story. Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. If you haven't allowed that passage to really settle in for a minute, do that. Think about what this man has experienced physically. He's gone from sight to blindness, according to what verse 11 says, in an instant. Do you think as you contemplate that verse that Paul can relate to what this man's going through? Wow. Paul on the road to Damascus, who has been opposing Jesus to the degree that Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? In other words, Paul's been fighting against God. God had to knock him upside the head. Paul, what are you doing this for? He was blind himself for three days. He needed to be led by the hand. I just want to be real clear about something. I, I don't think that Paul's blindness is the result of God's judgment, as it is in the case of Elimaeus. I, I believe that Paul's blindness was because he met Jesus, and God graciously gave him three days to really process, what just happened to me? I don't see that as judgment, but in Elimaeus' case, it's clearly judgment for this reason, for the hope that it's going to lead to salvation. I'm going to explain that to you in just a minute why I say that. He's going to have physical blindness to match his dark heart. The same way that he's been leading other people into spiritual darkness, perverting the truth, God's going to allow him to experience physical blindness. So verse 11 says, immediately a mist of darkness fell upon him. Here's what struck me this week. I, I bet since Bible college, I've read this passage 200 times. And never before have I seen the association between Paul and Elimaeus. And that, ironically, it's Paul who calls the blindness upon this man who's opposing Jesus. And in the moment when I read this, 
and I just began taking it apart and studying it, immediately the song, Amazing Grace, popped in my mind. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. I think Paul's got incredible mercy for this guy. God's mercy is evident here. The judgment is instant. He begins to grope around trying to find somebody who will lead him by the hand. But there's mercy in it. In verse 11, it says it's limited. It's for a time. Luke doesn't tell us how long. How long is too long to be blind? In like an hour? We don't know how long it was. We don't know how many days, weeks, day. What did it take to get this man's heart right? The only hope for him is that he's going to recover from spiritual blindness the way that God's going to allow him to recover from physical blindness. He's living in darkness now. There's where my mind went next after that song popped in my head. What Paul said to the church at Corinth. He's talking to Christians, mind you. When I share this verse with you, I want you to hear this. Paul's writing to the church at Corinth, believers in Jesus Christ, when he uses this phrase that's been haunting me this week, such were some of you. Some of you immediately know what I'm talking about. Let, let me take you to the passage. It comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul's writing to the church, remember. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. Church at Corinth is full of sinners who were washed. Look at the next phrase. It says, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. I'm thinking Paul standing in that courtroom who belongs to the proconsul of Rome and he's calling down judgment on this man with incredible mercy. Such were some of you. Paul knew that he stood opposed to Jesus. This man stands opposed to Jesus. Such were some of you. There's an incredible witness in the midst of this judgment. This miracle brings two things, not one thing, to Elimaeus. It brings a reality that it's a bad idea to battle against God because God always wins. But for Sergius Paulus, it's the power of God unto salvation. Look at how the story finishes, verse 12. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. There's a really important note there. It's so significant for us. It's the teaching of the Lord that led him to Christ. The stunning miracle, absolutely, no doubt. So powerful, it set his heart in the right direction. He's obviously already been leaning towards Jesus or Elimaeus wouldn't have attempted to divert him. But it's the teachings about Jesus that bring clarification for this man. I'm so glad that Dr. Luke included that detail. Hearing about Jesus, it was what brought him to the place where he understands about salvation. So catch this. While his former advisor is plunged into 
physical blackness. This man who's been living in spiritual darkness has now been delivered to the light of Jesus Christ. Is that not amazing, church? I don't care if you read that a hundred times. Every time you see someone who can represent what they once were, but who they are now in Jesus, we should say, that is amazing. I once was blind, but now I see. This story ends so cool. I love this passage, what's, what's coming here, because I'm going to show you a quote from Dr. William Ramsey, written in 1883. This is after he comes to Christ. He's a historian, remember? Professor at Oxford, archaeologist, who discovered the evidence that Sergius Paulus really was the proconsul of this island of Cyprus. And he writes this, what you see, about this individual who had children and grandchildren on the island. It says this, Sergia Paulia, the proconsul's daughter, became a Christian, as was her son, Gaius Carstenaeus Fronto. You think you've got a hard name to pronounce. Try that one. The first citizen of Sidian Antioch to enter the Roman Senate. This man, whom the Roman Senate put on the island of Cyprus to be their representative, the proconsul of Rome, goes on to see his children come to Jesus and to see his grandchildren come to Jesus to the degree that his own grandson takes Jesus with him into the Senate of Rome. How cool is our God? How amazing is the story that comes full circle all the way back around. Paul and Barnabas could not possibly have known this. All they knew is that they're doing God's will, and God called them to greater things, so they set sail for the island of Cyprus. They do exactly what God has called them to do. The conversion that you've just seen here in Acts chapter 13 is absolutely a turning point for Paul. He moves on to Europe, as you'll see next, Greece and Rome, and begins sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with the Gentile nation. Let me end this with verse 13. It says this, verse 13, now Paul and his companions put out to sea. And we're going to leave him floating on the Mediterranean Ocean until next week, all right? Here's what I want you to do. What you're going to see in Acts chapter 13 is one of the greatest explanations of what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul does such an amazing job when he sets foot on the mainland. The remainder of Acts chapter 13 speaks for itself. So, here's your role. You got somebody in your life who needs to understand Jesus? who's trying to figure this thing out, who's trying to make sense of it all, who is Jesus really, I encourage you, bring him with you next week because Acts chapter 13 is going to lay it out very plainly and very clearly. They will leave with no question about who Jesus is and what he does. But that's for next week. Right now, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for all of us that God will give us application out of what we've just studied. Would you join me in that? Father, thank you for the privilege of having studied your word this morning. And we do not take that lightly. It's a freedom that we've been granted in the United States to be able to freely study your word and understand what it says. We celebrate that. God, we also thank you for answering what we asked for in the beginning of this teaching, that your Holy Spirit would guide us and lead us. So we lean into that and ask that you would give us, through the power of your Holy Spirit, application. 
out of the hundreds who are here this weekend, we recognize you know each of us intimately and personally. And you know what each person here personally needs to hear from your word. So God, I ask that you would give personal application and that you would translate that to courage and boldness to live out that application. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.